I really need to thank you and Sarah for being there for me. You guys could have easily said, this isn't my problem. This is your problem. Your lack of due diligence is entirely your fault and not done anything at all. But you guys have been there for me every step of the way. You responded on Voxer at 342 in the morning. I know it might have been 642 depending on where you were, but honestly, who works at that time? So just the fact that you guys were there for me, I appreciate it so much. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1175, 1175. I'm here with our in-house economist, Thomas, and we want to talk to you about one of my very favorite topics in the intro portion today, and that is chocolate. No, it's not chocolate. <laughs> real estate investing. No, it's not real estate investing. It's inflation. You know I talk often about inflation-induced debt destruction, one of my favorite topics. It really is the hidden wealth creator. And at our last Meet the Masters event, we presented the big boring idea. And that big boring idea was ROA, return on amortization. And you know, we try to ferret out some of the unique things that other people really aren't talking about. The multi-dimensional nature of income property that really, really creates a fantastic return for you. Of course, inflation-induced debt destruction is one of those things. You won't see it on any performa, not even our performas, but it is a beautiful and incredible thing. Thomas, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Good to have you. So how does inflation work? Oh, yeah. In simple terms, what the federal government does or what other entities that track inflation do is they go out and they sample a whole bunch of prices and then they weight those prices and convert it into an index. They're really only the sampling and then there's the weighting. The most common index is the CPI, the Consumer Price Index. And listeners should know that there's more than one version of the CPI, which is interesting, but we don't need to go down that rabbit hole today. But the other sort of commonly referred to thing that I hear economists say, Thomas, is something they call core inflation or the core rate. And I think it's worth going down that rabbit hole for just a moment. So, Thomas, what are your thoughts on core inflation or the core rate? Well, yeah, so core inflation is prices with food and energy excluded. And the reason why analysts exclude food and energy is theoretically they are more volatile than other prices. Whether they all are more volatile or not is a, is a separate question, but yeah. in general, analysts like to exclude them. Right, right. I would even give them that, that they are more volatile. But 
you can't exclude them because they're hugely significant. I mean, nobody listening can live without food or energy, <laughs> right? So it seems kind of ridiculous that there would be any really even any mention or much mention of core inflation or the core rate, you know, try going to the grocery store and saying you'd like to pay the core rate, you know, for your groceries, you can't do it. But one of the other things I think it's worth just bringing up again, and you know, I've talked about this on past episodes, but not lately. And that's the way the consumer price index, the CPI is is manipulated. And there are significant motivations for the powers that be to manipulate the index. And this is not only a U.S. thing, of course, it's every government around the world, every reporting agency around the world, every statistical methodology around the world. Because, of course, government payments, whether they be welfare benefits or government employees, and I'm not just talking about U.S. government, are indexed to inflation, number one. And number two, in order to make the populace, the voters, feel better about their life, they want to make it seem like inflation is lower than it really is. So I played and, you know, I really got to play this as a Flashback Friday episode again. I've got to find that episode, but I thought it was great. Tom Keen, who is on Bloomberg, did a great piece where he interviewed one of the Fed chairmen. And it's that guy who was only on for a short time. I believe it was in the late 70s. It was I think it was right before Volcker. Was it Miller? Maybe yeah, Robert was it Robert Miller or something? I don't even know his name. He was he was such yeah, a short time, right? Was that him? I don't remember his first name, yeah. but it was Miller, and he was yeah. a businessman. Yeah, yeah. I think Tom Keen interviewed him. If I could be mistaken, and maybe I've even got the wrong guy. This was years ago. I played this on the podcast. I, I actually got the recording from Bloomberg and, and played that clip on the show because it was so insightful. Because it talked about how there was a lot of pressure to start manipulating the inflation index at a time when inflation was high. And somehow, suddenly, it it got lower, magically. So the three major ways they are being manipulated into believing inflation is is lower than it really is are substitution weighting and hedonics now you mentioned weighting right but there's there's really those three ways substitution weighting and hedonics so substitution just says hey if the price of beef goes up they think everybody will just switch to chicken but you know maybe you'd think chicken's a dirty bird and you don't like chicken right so you really have the beef inflation rate Waiting, I'll let you talk about that a little bit because you brought it up. Uh, tell us a little bit more about waiting. Oh, waiting just is they go out and sample what people spend their money on. And they say, well, you spent 25%, 30% on your home mortgage or your housing. You say spent 20% on your food. And, you know, the rest of the weights, transportation, 15 20%. And those weights make up the index. Right. So they just decide what weighs more in the index and whatever weighs more, maybe if it doesn't inflate as much, it has more weight. So it it makes the rate, the overall inflation rate look lower because of the weighting. And so that's a good point. And by the way, Thomas, you mentioned housing, which I think is interesting because they use this rather esoteric metric called the, I think it's called the rental equivalent rate or something. What, you know, Owner's equivalent rent. Owner's equivalent rent, yeah. Do you know much about that? I I, I talked about it before on the show, but I can't remember the interesting gymnastics they (laughs) they 
<laughs> used to calculate that one. Yeah, so owner's equivalent rent is basically the um, average rent across the country for a given month yeah. uh, yeah. to purchase a certain size of home. Right, right. And, you know, that varies so much based on location and, you know, market segment, housing type. I mean, wow, that's a that's a tough one. It, it really is. Let's just take a quick stab at hedonics here for the listeners. So hedonics, uh, I love that one. And I don't know what you think about it, Thomas, because we've never discussed hedonics. But the root of that is the word hedonism, which is seeking pleasure, right? We all know what hedonism is, hopefully. The concept being, how much pleasure do you get out of an item that you buy? And so the example I I use uh, when I talk about this in, in depth in the Creating Wealth conference that I do uh, in that one-day event, is a computer. So every couple of years, I buy a new laptop. And you know, it's funny thing, the laptop always costs me about $2,800 when I get the top-of-the-line laptop. And I always buy the whatever the best one is they have, and it never seems powerful enough because they keep making the software demand more processing power. So it seems like you never get ahead, but that's another discussion. But if the speed of that processor is double the speed of the one I bought a year or two earlier, and the price is the same, they will assume, if that computer is twice as good as the last one, that I really only paid $1,400 for it. But the reality is I didn't. I really paid $2,800 for it. Now, of course, you could adjust that for inflation, but over the course of that fairly short time period, it wouldn't be that significant. But that's the concept of hedonics. And what I hate about hedonic indexing, even though there's an argument that is logical, right? And I, I see that side, is that it says to us, we aren't really entitled to progress. I mean, let's think about it. Let's think if they hedonically indexed every item on earth since the invention of the wheel, <laughs> right? Or or the invention of the electric light bulb or one of these, you know, hugely significant inventions of any type. And they said, well, you know, you used to light your house with an oil lamp and uh, that used to catch the house on fire. And now your LED light is thousands of times better than that old oil lamp. Of course, that's true. <laughs> but you don't get to say that humanity is not entitled to progress, right? And that's what hedonic indexing does. It takes the progress entitlement away from us and gives it to the inflation index and says, oh, inflation is really much lower because we've had progress. Well, I hope we've had progress. Don't we all expect progress? You know, this is the evolution of uh, human thought and market innovation and capitalism that allocates resources so well. People out there chasing their own dreams and, hey, their own greed to make the world a better place, right? Hedonics is just a kind of a crazy one. Any thoughts on that? It's amazing, right? The computer example, basically, that means that you experience deflation of 50%. Oh, yeah. If, yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah. Right. Right. Your computer went from 2800 to 1400 so prices went down by 50%. We've had 50% deflation in two years. So now what happens is it depends how much weight they give that particular item that's hedonically indexed in the overall consumer price index. And so there you see it, folks. There you see this massive amount of manipulation in the index. 
And what's interesting is we all feel better in so many ways because a lot of things truly are deflating in price. The business systems, the internet, all of this stuff, the supply chains have become so much more efficient, manufacturing more efficient, better in so many ways. And so it feels better. But you know what's massively inflated is the assets. The asset prices have massively inflated. So the cost of a house is so dramatically much higher. And then you'll see these idiots who talk about, well, houses nowadays are bigger and better. Okay, well, we should hedonically index those. But they never consider, Thomas, the density of housing. The fact that we all live like packed rats now, right on top of each other. Whereas before, you know, everybody used to have a one-acre lot. And so things have definitely changed, you know. The density, the packing density of houses is much, much tighter than it's ever been in history. So a lot of stuff there. But let's end it and get on with the rest of our show with just talking for a moment, Thomas, about inflation-induced debt destruction, the hidden wealth creator in income property investments. And many of you have heard me talk about this. Many of you listening have been to my live events where I've shown this fantastic chart that shows the typical person on a 30-year mortgage, a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, literally got paid to borrow the money. They got paid. They thought they were borrowing, in the example I give, at 7.37%. But over the course of the three decades that they were paying on that mortgage, inflation and tax benefits literally caused them to get paid, paid, negative interest rate of 1.16% plus, they got to live in the house for free. They got paid to borrow the money. It's magic. It's the closest thing to magic we really get. But I don't know, you know, in our, our upcoming Savannah Venture Alliance Mastermind Retreat, you know, Savannah is largely considered a haunted place. So we might see some ghosts there. Maybe that's kind of magical. I don't know. <laughs> but but inflation-induced debt destruction is a phenomenal, magical thing. It really is. Let's wrap it up with that. Thomas, any last thought before we go to the rest of our show? No, good talking to you. All right. Inflation is a, a magic thing. I, I agree. As long as it's on your side. There can be bad magic, too. Great way to put it. Yeah, most people get hurt by inflation, but with our strategies that we've outlined over the years on this show and at our live events, it is magic and it works for you, not against you. So put inflation on your side with income property investments. Thomas, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure to welcome Mark Ferguson to the show. He is the founder of Invest for More. He is a uh, primarily a home flipper. He is in Northern Colorado. Mark, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, yeah, it's good to have you. So first off, uh, how is the market? And what are your thoughts on the real estate market and the economy in general, maybe? It's always tough to know. I think we are definitely seeing a slowdown in my area. Colorado has been one of the hottest markets in the country. You know, I'm in Greeley, Colorado, which is north of Denver a little bit. And our median price in 2011 was 110000 mm-hmm. And our median price right now is over 300000 Wow, so that's it's amazing. Been, now, yes. a, a distinction, though, let's make sure we don't get people thinking <laughs> that home prices have tripled there. They haven't. It's just the median home price has changed. 
So that doesn't mean they've tripled in value. Okay, so I just want to make sure people understand that. But feel free to comment on what appreciation has been like. You know, it has actually tripled in some neighborhoods or more. You know, some of the lower end properties, you could buy a $30,000 property right after the crash. And those houses are worth close to 200000 right now. It's right, crazy. right. But that's not really the same house. That house has been rehabbed now, right? A little it's, bit. It's, it's, yes. it's, it may be... See, this is what's so deceiving, right? There's all these market distortions and people don't really... You know, you got to peel the onion to understand it, right? The investor market that has just driven the market for so many years now coming out of the Great Recession has fueled this boom in construction. And, you know, listen, I'm a hard money lender, too. OK, so I I know the deals because I'm the one financing them, you know, a lot of times. And, you know, rehabbers will come in, they'll buy that $30,000 house, they'll put 60 grand into it, resell it to the first investor. And then a lot of these neighborhoods have been really upgrading substantially. And, you know, they've been in different parts of the country, they've been gentrifying. And, you know, there have been lots of improvements to the house. So even if you take the same property address and follow it through time, it doesn't mean that's actual appreciation. There's been added value to those properties a lot of times. No, not always. But I mean, I guess the way you could most accurately tell what's going on in the market would be to take a condo that can't really be very improved. You can only improve the inside of it, right? Not the outside. And in a way, that would be almost a more accurate barometer. I don't know. Maybe not. But thoughts. (laughs) Stream of consciousness here. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I agree with that, too. And a lot of those properties were rehabbed. But um, even some of the condos, you know, you could buy condos for 60,000, 70,000. And those are worth 200000 today. Mm-hmm. So it's been crazy here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So the market is cooling down. Now, when you say the market, do you mean all price ranges? Do you mean certain price ranges? Dice that up for us. I think all markets are slowing down, but it's definitely slowing down more in the higher price ranges. So, you know, the starter homes, anything below 300000 but we were seeing multiple offers, you know, contracts way above list price. And that has really stopped. You're seeing one offer. It's taking a couple of weeks for houses to sell, which is still a, a couple, very healthy market. A couple market. weeks? You got to be kidding. That's forever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we had record low inventory for like six years in a row. Right. And we're seeing that creep up now, too. So I compared stats from last year versus this year in the last month. And we have about 30 to 40 percent more inventory longer days on market. And just from the feel of selling my own houses, it's definitely kind of leveling off, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now that begs the question, if things are slowing down and it's leveling off, why isn't there any inventory of properties to buy in the lower priced side of the market? It's just still dry everywhere. (laughs) There's nothing to buy. I think part of that is, well, here is a little different because it's hard to build houses in Colorado. People think there's all this land available and there is, but water is really expensive here. Land is really expensive and they aren't building low-end houses here. You know, the, I think the builders see, hey, there's more profit margin on this $500,000 house. I'm going to build a couple of those instead of build 20 smaller houses. And we just have not seen building take off like it did pre-crash when we saw everything fall apart. Right, right. So when you say water is really expensive, are you talking about water rights? 
water taps, water rights. So if you're building a brand new house here and you want to buy a water tap for just a quarter acre lot, you're probably looking at thirty to forty thousand dollars for that tap. Yeah, so that is expensive and that limits development. Now I'll give you an interesting stat. I just read a uh, a report a couple of days ago, and I couldn't believe this. This is really quite startling because this is not appreciation per se. It's just, well, it's exactly what it says. It's cost of construction, okay? And the cost of construction for a like-kind single-family home over the last six years has increased by 31%. That's really staggering. I mean, to build the same house six years ago would cost you, you know, now it costs you 31% more six years later. I mean, that is mind-boggling. All the prices of all those ingredients of a home, all those commodities, and to put them together and assemble them, 31% more. You know, wow. That's shocking. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. So when you're flipping, are you always rehabbing your properties or sometimes just flipping without a rehab? 95% 95% of the time we're rehabbing. So there's a few houses that we've sold without doing a rehab, but it's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. And we've done a few where we'll do real minor rehabs to get them, you know, FHA ready. But most of the houses we're doing, we're spending twenty to $50,000 on the rehabs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. And that rehab cost, I mean, I remember post-Great Recession, there were little minor rehabs. You could do a rehab for seven to fifteen thousand dollars. That just seems virtually impossible anymore. I mean, it all depends what you do, but wow, the rehab costs have gone up dramatically. Yes, and Nikki is my project manager, and she helps manage our contractors and keep track of stuff. And she always makes fun of me because I'm still stuck. You know, a few years ago, or even ten years ago, when you could do a full rehab for it seemed like fifteen thousand. She's like. You can't do that. You're out of your mind. It's going to cost us 30000 So it's, yeah, labor's gone up. Materials have gone up. Just everything has gone up so high. Yeah, it's really amazing. Okay, good. Talk to us uh, about whatever you want to talk about for a moment. I've sort of driven the questions here, but just, uh, you know, what, what do you want to tell the listeners? I think, you know... There's a lot of talk about the market, what it's going to do, what it's not going to do. I definitely think we'll see a slowdown. We could even see a a decrease. I don't think we'll see a crash like we did last time. I just think there's so many investors out there and the lending guidelines are so much stronger that we won't see a crash like that for a really, really long time. What happened during the Great Recession was really a once in a lifetime event. I mean, you know, very few people are still alive or at least they're not, they weren't adults during the Great Recession, the Great Depression, I should say. So, you know, that's sort of a once in a lifetime type of event. But certainly there will be minor recessions and cycles in the market, no question about it. And what's interesting about it, and I'd love to get your take on this, Mark, is what do you think will happen to rents? I mean, we find when interest rates go up and affordability declines, it strengthens rents. So the long-term buy and hold investors really benefit from a market uh, slowing down a bit. Thoughts? Yeah, I would agree with that because when we had the the great recession, you know, a lot of places didn't even see decreased rents. There were actually a lot more renters because they lost their homes and rents, you know, may have gone down in some areas, but it, it wasn't this huge crash and not every investor went bankrupt. And I just think, you know, if people realize, hey, you know, it is a little scary to invest in anything, but you've got to get over this fear mindset and really just look at the fundamentals. I love long-term rentals. I wish I could buy more of them here, but our market's just the rent to value ratio is not suitable for residential properties anymore. I just think, you know, people need to 
just not be afraid to get out there and invest, even if it's not the perfect market. Yeah. Okay. Good, good stuff. Back on to what you want people to know and uh, what you want to tell people. I love to educate people. I love to teach people. I, I started a blog, investformore.com. That's invest, F-O-U-R-M-O-R-E.com. Just to talk about my rentals, how to finance them, you know, talk about my flips, have videos before and afters of everything, and, and also talk about starting a real estate brokerage, which I did this year. So I just love to educate people, show them what I've done, give them some tips along the way. And I've written a few books about it as well. So I'm happy to, to give out free information or if people you know are looking for other coaching, we have a few programs as well. And I just love, love seeing people succeed. Talk to us about some of the best practices on rehabs and how you can really keep the cost down. And listeners, this doesn't just apply to rehab per se. This also applies to tenant turns, your properties that are aging, and you need to make some upgrades to them over the years, things like that. Uh, Just uh, share with us some of the best practices on managing contractors, which is frankly difficult. There's no question about (laughs) it. And getting good prices and making them keep their promises, which is a whole art and science in and of itself. (laughs) Yes. You can tell I've been through this before (laughs) with my cynicism. Yeah. Yes, great question. And yeah. and there's so many things to go over. But one thing to save price, you know, it's, it's an art to figure out what to repair and not to repair. It's, it's really easy to make a house look amazing on HGTV if you spend $100,000. The tr- tough part is making it look, you know, decent on a budget. And so we love to shop at Home Depot. We have a managed pro account there. So we buy in bulk to get, you know, they have a sale on vanities. We might buy 15 of them and store them in our storage area. And just working really close with the contractors, we buy all the materials. So I pay for the materials. The contractors can't say, oh, I need, you know, 50% up front to pay for materials because I'm paying for them. So that helps a ton. When we search for contractors, we're very careful about how we interview them. We're almost like interviewing for a job where we might place an ad on Craigslist, give them specific instructions on how to email us, what to email us. If they do that right, then we'll give them a questionnaire. And that eliminates probably 75% of the people because they're not willing to answer a few questions or send us a resume or give us information that we need. And we figure if they can't do that, we can't trust them to work on our houses. And then as far as getting them to do you know what they say they do, we are at the properties once a week during an active rehab, if not more, just there all the time, making sure they're working. And, you know, we have a bid, we have a contract with them, but really it's more about trust and the people you work with, because if they don't want to follow a contract, you're pretty much gonna have to sue them to get any money out of them. They know that we know that it's more about trust than it is about your contract or anything written down. Yeah, I agree. And I, I'd say it's even more about making sure that the incentives are aligned and there's a real art to this. I mean, it's, these have been hard lessons for me to learn over the years. You know, you can write everything all over a contract, but the contract is just too hard to enforce. What matters is can you make incentives align? In other words, progress payments, understanding what is expected on those progress payments, and so forth. Any any thoughts on that and you know how you how you structure those contracts? What we've usually done is we'll pay 25% upfront and when the job is 50% done, we'll pay another 25%. And when it's all the way done, we pay the rest. And when I mean all the way done, it's blue taped. They've come back and fixed everything. You know, everything's clear to go. And that's really helped just make sure they're motivated. 
And we also have hired, well, we have four full-time employees now who are either handyman or contractors who we pay hourly, which is just amazing. I love having complete control and they do whatever we want. We can use all their subs. It's just been awesome. Yeah. Okay. Good. How do you decide what to do in a property? I mean, you know, rehabs can go all over the board. You can gut the property and just replace everything and do everything. Or you can do some minor, uh, I'll call it lipstick on a pig. <laughs> it was the old saying. Right. Goes. How do you make the right decision? How do you arrive at that decision in terms of what to do? A lot of it starts with the systems in a house. So, I mean, we'll always have our electrician go in, our HVAC guy, our plumber, and make sure the house is safe, everything's working right. So, you know, if that electrician has to tear down drywall, that's going to dictate how much work we do and how far we go. Hopefully, we try and find houses where less is more. We can do some electric, some plumbing, HVAC, the roof. But on the inside, we're very rarely changing floor plans or tearing out walls. We replace a lot of kitchens, but we can replace a kitchen at Home Depot, you know, for around $7,000 all in. But we're not tearing out the wall and moving electrical and moving heating vents to do that. We're replacing the kitchen where it is. And we just try and do minimal repairs that look really good. So we focus on kitchens, baths, light fixtures, paint, and flooring. And whenever I get into the huge rehabs or do an addition for really changing the floor plan, that seems to be where we run into the nightmares. Things take forever. We go over budget and it's just usually not worth the hassle. Yeah. Okay. What about the concept of how much value will that household on the rehab? Making a larger rehab sometimes makes sense if the neighborhood will support it, right? But sometimes a neighborhood won't support a high-end rehab and you want to just do something basic. Great question. In a lot of our houses, you know, we're selling them from 270000 to 400000 which is actually the low end of our market. And so we are not going all out on materials. Some houses might get granite, but a lot of them get the prefab Home Depot laminate counters. You know, we're doing not the bottom of the barrel appliance package, but, you know, next up, maybe a little nicer. And the cabinets, we're not spending a ton of money on the cabinets because most of these houses, we're making them nice enough where they're selling at the top of their neighborhood. And if we spend 10 or 20,000 more, we're not going to get any of that back. You know, we're already seeing pushback from appraisers on a lot of these deals. And we have to be very careful that we're not over improving for the neighborhood. So all the time we're conscious, okay, how much can we spend where we're close to the top, but we're not pushing the barrier because those appraisers will come in and just, you know, shoot us down every time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. Well, let's wrap it up. Anything else you want to say? It sounds like you're still very excited about long-term buy and hold income property investing. It's good to hear. I know a question actually, before we do that wrap up question, let me ask you about your shopping center. You did a strip center, right? Is that, is that your only retail deal? How's that going? So i Bought 15 residential properties from 2010 to 2015, and rent-to-value ratios were great. Then our prices got so high, you really couldn't cash flow with those anymore. And so I started buying commercial in 2017, and I bought four kind of smaller properties last year. And then, yes, I bought a 68,000-square-foot strip mall this year that has a grocery store, a coffee shop, a restaurant, and then actually opened my own office in one of the vacant spaces. And it has been awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got a really good deal on it, which was the first really selling point on it. But just the cash flow has been great. It's a triple N lease. So the tenants pay all the expenses and it's been making more money than we thought. 
been less work than we thought, and it's just been a fantastic investment. Okay. So that's, when you say commercial, you mean retail, right? Not apartments. Yes. So like one of my commercial is like an industrial little shop area. We've got an office building. One of them, I just bought a restaurant actually two days ago that's vacant that we're going to re-rent. So yeah, straight, you know, retail, restaurant, industrial, not apartment buildings. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. It sounds like the secret to that deal was really the buy side, right? Just getting yes. a good deal buying it. And so even though I'm an agent and a broker, I am not a specialist in commercial. So I had teamed up with another commercial broker in the area who's been doing it for 30 years and let him be my broker. I paid him a commission and everything. And he kind of brought me a, a pocket listing on this deal. And that's how that came about. Okay, good. So uh, that was uh, sort of luck of the draw, right? That you got that, you know, off market deal, right? Yes. And in dealing in the commercial world versus residential, it's so different. There's oh, it's massively a different. lot of yeah. <laughs> pocket listings. It's, sure. it's more about who you know mm-hmm. than what you can do yourself. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. Good. Good stuff. OK, so back to our wrap up question. Just any thoughts uh, before you go? Gave out your website already, uh, but just uh, just wrap it up for us with any closing thoughts. Just happy to be on the show. Love to help people. Like I said, the blog is a great place. If you want to learn more, you can always email me, mark at investformore.com. And then we have a a pretty robust YouTube channel too with 30,000 subscribers where I I show all my properties and give other advice. It's just a search for invest for more on YouTube and you'll find that there too. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. No, thank you. Happy to be on the show and really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. 